Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up? Happy Wednesday. I am Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in for another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. Today, we're continuing our opponent preview series with Kyle Sutherland of the Hog Talk podcast, talking Arkansas here for about an hour. Got into a number of different topics. Is Batesville native KJ Jefferson, uh, what his prospects as what is kind of his team now by default with Felipe Franks gone. Uh, Arkansas kind of being an opportunistic defense last year that masked some of their other deficiencies. Uh, what they have at the skill position, which I think will maybe kind of an interesting uh, factor in actually defining Arkansas this year and a bunch of other stuff. So uh, good conversation. Uh, I think these things are helping me get familiar with SEC opponents, particularly Ole Miss's opponents, and I hope it is serving the same purpose for you guys as well. So before we get to that, I wanted to remind you the podcast brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Go see Greg. He'll get you hooked up. If you're a subscriber to the Rippy Rights newsletter currently, you're getting a 16-ounce prime strip for 15 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. That's a hell of a way to kick off a weekend. And all you have to do is go to rippyrights.substack.com, sign up. All you have to do is put in your email address. You get a free email from yours truly three to five times a week and discounted beats. So you can decide which one, uh, which, which, which one has more value there. I'll let, uh, leave that up to the people. Podcast also brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. As we enter football season, you're going to want to help beating the man instead of paying the man. Skybox is certainly the place to do that. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, I'm glad you asked. They're the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval and Advanced Modeling Mechanism that has helped Sky propel Skybox to the top of the industry. These guys are legit. You need to go check them out. Use the promo code RIPPY. You get 20% off any Perkins purchase uh, they're going to have a picks package that fits your price range i can promise you that whether it's a, a month-long sports centric pass you can do a month-long seasonal pass you can do month-long all sports they've got all kinds of different stuff or you can go the full on your pass and get full access to the site for a year but i promise you as you wait into football season you don't want to start off down in a hole and you continue to dig deeper these guys will make sure the hole never happens go check them out skybox sports picks Com. A lot of great stuff in store from the guys at Skybox for football season. Now, without further ado, here's Kyle Sutherland. All right, we now welcome on Kyle Sutherland of the Hog Talk podcast. Really appreciated a moment of your time today as we continue our opponent preview series. Uh, this being the Arkansas Razorbacks. I have already made my first mistake of the preseason. I decided when I was doing these preseason series previews, I was going to go in order of Ole Miss's schedule and uh, went out of order like Took me two opponents in. I went Tennessee instead of Arkansas. But we're back on track with Kyle now. What's up? How are you? Oh, man, I'm doing great. Ready for season to start. I know that uh, most Razorback fans are about as excited as, we, excited as we've been probably in the last three or four years. You know, we, we were – I tell people all the time we were social distancing long before all the COVID stuff happened because of the Chad Morris fiasco. But we're pumped and ready for this season to get going for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just kind of nice to be rolling into a season where you're not worried about cancellations and whether you're going to have a season because uh, I actually believe it might be this coming weekend. Maybe it's the next weekend that was kind of the anniversary of the whole uh, college football isn't happening. And then two days later, three days later, the SEC and the uh, Big 12 are kind of like, hold on a second. That's that, where'd you get that information and kind of forged through. I'm glad we are uh, we are kind of behind us with all of that and uh hopefully i know it'll probably play a factor to some degree i am uh 
hopeful there will be no look up on Thursday and see what games haven't been canceled yet type of thing. I'm glad that will be behind us for the most part. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, you know, obviously it's definitely – not behind us or anything, as, as uh, I saw on, on the news as I, as I was about to head to work, that I think it's like 28% of the country thinks that this is all over. And that's definitely not the case. But at the same time, too, I don't see really any shutdowns happening. We should, still should be able to play football and all that. And so, uh, you know, it's definitely good for the kids, of course, on the, on the, the main deal there. But, yeah, I, I don't see that happening. We should have a full schedule and all that. But if, if you do have to have some cancellations, it's obviously going to be no good because Greg Sankey has made it clear that there will be no rescheduling. So you definitely want to hope that uh, that that's the case and, and that they will get to play the full 12 games, 11 games, whatever it is. Yeah, I think with the whole vaccine, like the vaccine being available as it obviously was not this time last year, like it'll still play a factor. Like it, there'll be a couple games that kind of get like, I guess when you're all arguing about the college football selection committee in November, there'll be a couple games where you'll argue about X guy or, you know, X unit that had COVID that week or whatever, but I don't think you're going to see any, uh, you know, drop below the number of healthy player thresholds. And uh, like you mentioned, Greg Sankey is not, uh, he is not going to be keen to move games around. That's just not really going to happen if they can't make it work within the normal structure of the bye weeks. It's just not going to happen. So I'm glad we got that part out of the way and, uh, and can kind of have a normal-ish season with uh, fans in the stands because Ole Miss and Arkansas were sort of in the same boat last year where uh, you're coming off a, a, a tough half decade, really, for the lack of a better phrase. I know that dipped into two coaches for Arkansas. For Ole Miss, it was really Matt Luke, tail end of Hugh Freeze. But you kind of have some sort of sense of competency and excitement uh, amongst the program, and they're more interesting to cover for the first time in quite a while. And then you get this weird COVID year where you don't get spring. You get a weird camp, like not very many fans a lot in the stadium. Like, it was a weird year to have a first-year head coach particularly at two teams and two programs that overachieved to some degree. Like it almost, it almost felt you didn't get the full luster of it, I guess is what, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. And, and I for sure thought that Arkansas, that they were only going to win maybe. I, I, at first I had said that they were probably not going to win any games when I saw especially that Florida and Georgia were both on the schedule. But then I, I pretty much started predicting it once the schedules came out at one and nine. So they for sure overachieved. I really didn't expect them to get that Ole Miss game in particular. Mississippi State, I think, was one that we didn't expect either because they came off that big win over LSU to defend the national champions. That was, of course, before we realized that LSU wasn't the LSU of old. But we, you look at Arkansas in particular. I know that Ole Miss finished really strong. They were the third-ranked offense in the entire country. And, and Arkansas definitely overachieved. You wouldn't know by the record. But just considering what this program has been through, I talked about right there in the opening, the Chad Morris era. You also go to the end of the Brett Bielema era. It's just been an incredibly rough going. I think probably more so than any Razorback fan alive has ever endured. And so that's why we're just ready to get this thing. You know, I'm, I'm personally – not expecting anything massive. I think that we will get a couple more wins than last year, but nonetheless, I'm just like, like we've just been talking about ready formalcy, you know, to where we can pack DW Reynolds stadium. You certainly expect that for week two against Texas on ESPN and prime time. And so that's just really what I'm, I'm looking forward to the most is that we're actually going to be able to have packed stadiums because like, like I said, Arkansas hasn't really had that in probably about three years at least. Yeah, absolutely. And that's probably as good a place to start as any is. It's just kind of looking back at Sam Pittman's first season. As you kind of mentioned, I mean, I remember I had 
there was a time where I guess I was off. I was not doing radio anymore by the time the schedules came out. So we were talking, I guess, on a podcast, whatever I was doing at the time. Like with this SEC only schedule, it was kind of, well, Ole Miss probably isn't going to fare too well against this. So you kind of go down. I think I had four and six, maybe three and seven. I can't remember what I had for the 2020 season. But when you're kind of looking at it around the league, it was Arkansas and Vanderbilt, and you're sitting there trying to find a win. And for Vanderbilt, obviously, you didn't find one. Arkansas certainly overachieved. And I think, look, obviously, three and seven is, like, not anything to write home about. But given where the Arkansas program was under Chad Morris, and, you know, they were three and seven and should have beaten Auburn and then had a weird game against Missouri. We're right in against LSU. Like, it was a three and seven to where you're competitive, so it felt like more like 500, particularly in a year one. Do you think them winning three games, Ole Miss game, you know, winning on the road at State and Tennessee was – I'm trying to think of the right way to phrase this. Like, not a – I guess, do you think it was an, more, a further indictment on Chad Morris, if that's even possible? Because it felt like Chad Morris got every benefit of the doubt, changing schemes from the butt, Brett Belima kind of bully ball, uh, run it up the middle, Big Ten-style offense. It felt like he got every benefit of the doubt. And then, you know, toward, even towards the end when it got bad, it's like, well, there's not enough talent there. Well, clearly there's enough talent to win three of seven SEC games in a 10-game conference-only schedule. It just felt like there was a base level of competence that should have been expected that you didn't get under Morris that he was almost excused for at times. Is, am I on the right track with that? Uh, that? You're exactly spot on, Brian. I couldn't agree more. I think that there was no question that Chad – we, we've always said, Razorback fan base and media and all that, have always said that, that he could recruit with the best – I don't know if you girls say with the best of them, but at least in the top 25 because that's what his 2019 class was in the top 25. And, and he definitely had all those connections in Texas. He's back coaching Texas high school football now. It's crazy. You know, a couple of years ago he's making $3 million coaching the SEC, and now he's back in, in the high school ranks. And so he just – could not figure out how to not only develop talent, talking about Chad, of course, still, could not figure out how to develop talent, but also make them play an entire game. But I think that also goes back to the fact that it was pretty obvious that they didn't want to play for it. And you could see that by whenever Chad got fired, some of his former players and some of the current ones on the roster were coming out and basically making cryptic tweets uh, about that. And some were just straight up saying that it was the right move to get rid of him. I think the only ones that really kind of still had his back were some of his former players that he may have had back at Clemson and LA, or uh, SMU and some of the ones that he brought into Arkansas himself. And so I, I can't remember what company it was or which uh, rankings it was, but I know it may have been Bleacher Report, but they came out with a poll of the top 15 or 20 most underdeveloped teams and Arkansas was was one on there but that has talent but just hasn't developed it correctly yet and so Chad, our, Sam Pittman came in from the Chad Morris tenure and basically as I've said so many times on on my show and other podcasts that he just made this team believe again which was the, the very foundation of what they needed these kids needed to believe that they could go out and win games again. Because when you're getting blown out by a group of five teams, especially at home, that just tells me that you don't want to be out there. You don't want to play for your coach. And so that's pretty much what Sam Pittman had to do is come out there and show these guys, hey, you are talented. You can win. And they got three wins out of it. Now he's doing pretty well on the recruiting trail. And he's just got to get one that they're not expecting them to win this year. And they got a big opportunity in week two against Texas. Last thing on Morris, because I, I just find the way that happened interesting because, uh, you know, it, it almost felt like longer than two years. And i just curious, it's kind of a two-parter here. 
was it a per? I, I will start here actually. Was it the personality thing? Because that's what I, another thing I was going to get at that you hit it hit on a second ago was the. It, it seemed like he, for the sports cliche, lost the locker room. But it definitely seemed like his his players and personnel and kind of everything around him imploded and sort of turned on him. Uh, was it a personality thing? Was it a? I just remember there was a loss early in 2019, maybe it was late 2018, where he was. I guess candid to say the least about like what he was working with. And I, I just wonder if that was the start of something uh, not detrimental to him in terms of getting the benefit of the doubt for a third season. Well, I think that he came in and thought he could do it. This is just my personal opinion. This is what I got out of it. I think that he came in thinking he could do a lot of what he did at SMU and that's how it score people. And you knew, I think that he realized coming in that he was going to have to play a little bit of defense in the SEC so what do you do? You bring in one of the most historical names in John Chavis, who was very washed. And I love John. John Chavis is a great guy. I'm not going to talk anything down on him personally. But I think what went down with that is Chad said, okay, I'm going to have to play a little defense. I'm going to call and see if I can give John Chavis a million and a half dollars a year. And then he'll come back and, and coach for me for, you know, two to three years, whatever it is. Well, Brian, if you're John Chavis and you're 60-ish years old and you're sitting at home chilling and somebody calls you to run a defense for a million and a half dollars a year, hell yeah, you're going to take it probably. So he comes and then it's just I, – I, I don't know that I want to say that, that John Chavis didn't want – didn't really try or anything. But also, too, Joe Craddock was very in over his head. He was not ready to be an offensive coordinator, particularly at the SEC level. Now he's like a tight ends coach at UAB or something like that. He just wasn't prepared for that. And from what I had gathered in practice, they didn't really teach fundamentals. They just pretty much ran plays. It was whether you messed up a play or didn't run it right or not, they just pretty much said, line it up and do it again. And so they really just didn't break down fundamentally like they're getting now, like you typically get, and whether you're in all the way down to the peewee level uh, of teaching the fundamentals of the game. And so I think that it was just a mixture of that. and The defense was kind of fighting with the offense. There was certainly turmoil in the locker room. I have heard that confirmed from a, a couple of former players. And so I, I think it was really just boils down to the fact that the coaches were not on the same page. And then it, it kind of trickled on down to the players. Yeah, it's a good point on Chavis in particular because he was a half decade washed, like in terms of being outdated in, in, in terms of – because I think how much irrecognizably different SEC football is, you know, than it was six years ago. Like, it's a rapidly evolving game. And I say SEC, just the sport in general. And at 60 years old, you're not coaching for a next job or some sort of promotion or, like, there was no further career path to kind of motivate him. Uh, I imagine at 60 years old, he was probably just happy to cash a check, which is not great when you're working with inferior talent. And I think you're dead on with the player development part of it, particularly in practice, because uh, when you get to the SEC, you have to have – uh, you know, the whole Jimmy's and Joe's deal. Like, you can't just kind of out-scheme people in the SEC, which I feel like is easier to do at uh, kind of the lower-ish levels. Because, look, American's got a pretty good football conference. But go look at the personnel and support staff of an American program versus an SEC program. There's just – it's not comparable. And so there's there's a lot more scheming and scouting and, you know, everything that goes into that in a given week. And I think Phil Longo, old Mrs. former offensive coordinator, ran into some issues with that coming from Sam Houston State. Uh, kind of last thing on Morris, and then we'll get to this. Was the was the San Jose State game the nail in the coffin that 2019 year? Because I remember just watching as an outsider. They lost by a touchdown. That's an early September game after they barely beat Portland State. Weren't com that competitive against Ole Miss. It was close enough. And then I guess they did get a win against Colorado State. But that felt like, okay, this is over with. 
Yes, that was the beginning, or at least, well, I don't know if I would say it was the final nail in the coffin. That was the beginning of the end, is what I would say. That was when people were like, okay, this is clearly not working out. And so it's just kind of really one of those things to where people were, were questioning him. And now it was really a major concern. The final nail in the coffin was as poetic of an ending as you could think of. Your former quarterback, Ty Story, transferring to Western Kentucky, coming in and just beating the brakes off of you at home in your own stadium. And that's your last game. And he just went completely off, ended up being the Conference USA Player of the Year after struggling at Arkansas. I mean, every quarterback struggled under Morris, all eight that we played. I think it was eight or nine in the two years there. So Ty Story brings Western Kentucky in. They beat him to death, essentially. Uh, at least thought, figuratively from a football standpoint, and, and Chad gets fired the next day. And so I think that was definitely the final nail in the coffin, a group of five team. That's your fourth one. As I said, Brian, he had four wins in his two years at Arkansas, really not even full two years. So he had as many group of five losses as he had in wins total. And so that's it's obviously not going to cut it. And so, yeah, Ty Story coming in, that, that was when it was just like, okay, we have to make a move here and just stop the bleeding. How important looking back will that Mississippi State win be for Sam Pittman? Because you go through, a, it was a pretty pretty uh, eventful hiring cycle for the SEC and really just nationally that year. And there was all that Lane Kiffin, like, like there's always one school that ends up with a pretty good hire and a pretty good head coach, but there was so much like public flirtation with another candidate that it feels like the school got burned, even if that's not actually the case. And then you have a guy like Pittman, who comes straight from the offensive line ranks that no one really knew a ton about. And so it kind of felt like a reach. I don't think it played well, you know, at the time of the hiring, but as we've learned time and time again through the years, the, the, the moment of the hiring, the win, the press conference, all those cliches matters very little. It's going to matter whether the guy can recruit, develop talent and win games. It's really those three things. And so you just didn't yeah. know. And so I, I, he wasn't getting the benefit of the doubt that like a Lane Kiffin or something would have. How important was that state win in week two last year? Uh, it was incredibly massive. I think regardless, if, even if it would have been Vanderbilt, just to get an SEC win and give us some kind of hope because it had been, oh, well, yeah, I guess basically almost three years to the day. We were about 10 or 15 days shy of being exactly three years to the day, uh, which I know, you know, it'll be painful for some of your listeners to hear the one before that, because that was uh, when we beat, we came back, Ole Miss was up 31 to seven on us in 2017. And then we came back and kicked the field goal to win it. And we hadn't won one since that time. So almost exactly three years. And I was watching the game with my girlfriend and my girlfriend could just, God bless her heart. She just doesn't know a thing about sports, doesn't really care about them, but she'll watch the games with me. And, and I, I was I didn't really have any reaction, you know, because I didn't really know how to react. I'd kind of forgotten. And she's just like, are you excited? And I'm like, yeah, I'm excited, but I don't know what to do because I haven't experienced this in so incredibly long. And so it was massive just to kind of give us some hope and and finally get that monkey off of our back to, because to go that long, uh, it's just brutal. And so you got to start somewhere. And, you know, at that time, like I mentioned, we thought that Mississippi State was going to be a really, really good team based on what they had done to LSU the week previous. We saw that that uh, they didn't do so hot, and, and it didn't turn out that great for them. But just to get that one for us was was a huge, huge milestone for the program. In terms of – obviously, you talk about program momentum, and people don't like that word because it's not like a tangible and quantifiable thing. But when you had that early success like that, it kind of – like there was – 
quickly turned from Sam Pittman is, you know, probably not cut out for this job to Sam Pittman is doing one hell of a job. Uh, look at what he's working with. It's kind of funny how the whole kind of narrative and storyline can shift. Be that as it may, Arkansas goes two and two in the first four games. I think they forced like 13 turnovers in those four games. Uh, Matt Corral, I think, was responsible for like half of those. Actually, I think literally half of those. Um, over half, I guess it was a seven turnover game because he had the fumble. And then I think just forced four in the final, what I guess that was six games, and they go one and five down that stretch. What kind of, the, as you get to November and the losses stacked up because they played close games against, you know, LSU and Missouri, and they're right there in there, most of them. Like, I guess what is kind of the, the overall, how would fans look at the 2020 season uh, in, 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 I guess, entirely in a vacuum, and, and like, how would you gauge it? Because it was an early success, but it was kind of tougher down the stretch where it felt like they regressed a little bit to the mean. Yeah, and that just goes right into play. Brian, I don't think enough people talk about, yes, you have to have talent clearly, and yes, you got to have talent to win in general, but we, we don't talk enough about the two deep, like to have, to have guys for your backups that are quality. That's why BAM is so successful. That's why Clemson's so successful. That's why typically LSU, Georgia, and even you can throw Florida in there at times, is because they've got guys on their two deep that can, that can play and get the job done. We didn't quite have that, and that's, that's one of the big reasons why Sam Pittman just continues to push recruiting and continues to get that depth is because you just have to have that to win in this league. And once the COVID numbers started piling up, once some injuries started piling up, we really didn't have consistent play on the defensive line, and that really put a lot of stress on a rather talented secondary. And even though you had an All-American linebacker in Grant Morgan and then another solid linebacker and All-SEC type player in, in Bumper Pool, other than that, at linebacker, you really didn't have much. And so once those guys – both of those guys each missed a game with an injury, and, of course, as the season, the wear and tear goes on, you're going to wear down a little bit. And so I think just a mixture of the COVID numbers but also the wear and tear on your first-string guys, that really hurt the defense a lot. And then, of course, Felipe missed a game. And even though Felipe missed a game, K.J. Jefferson filled in the Mizzou game, which you, I know you referenced earlier. He, he was very good in that one, um, enough so that – I've said all offseason that unless he were just to bomb it completely and fall camp did enough to show me that he's certainly QB1. But I think mainly, especially in terms of the defense, it was it was the COVID numbers, which everybody had to deal with. But just the wear and tear on the first string guys really hurt us a lot. You took me right where I was going to go next. This seems like almost K.J. Jefferson's team by default. And I'm just curious if where do you think he's at in his terms of his development and being ready to you know be the quarterback of an SEC West program? And do you think having last year, having Felipe Franks come in as a transfer and Jefferson kind of, I guess, getting one more year of seasoning, or at least for whatever you think about Felipe Franks, that guy's played a lot of SEC football and been through a lot of wars. Like if, if Jefferson had inherited the team last year by default, how differently do you think his development would be and how helpful do you think it was to have that, you know, one more year, particularly in a year where you weren't going to win a ton of games, no matter who you had at quarterback, uh, to him developing and I guess maybe being better suited to do it this year? Uh, it was massive having Felipe, especially from a leadership standpoint. You know, he was definitely pretty immature at Florida, but he came in and just led by example, was a completely different guy. And I, I can't thank him enough for what he did. And I was pretty critical of him. Uh, I knew that he had had his great times, but he had also had his times of struggle and, and, and again, the immaturity issues. But we didn't see any kind of thing like that at Arkansas. And he certainly helped the QB room, no question. And, and Brian, I'm not a QB guru whatsoever, but I do know that 
one of the reasons why a lot of quarterbacks fail is because they're not confident. And that's one area that KJ, I, I have no question. I think that he's confident. He's confident in this team. He's confident in these in this offense, these coaches. He's still got some room to develop mechanically because he really doesn't have a ton of experience. But that Missouri game you go back to, he was kind of put in there last minute. I, I really think it came down to literally like that morning, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I was actually covering a high school state championship that day, and I get to the, the, the stadium, and then I hear that he's playing. I had no idea that Felipe was even hurt. Maybe I was just out of the loop, but but I didn't hear it until minutes before kickoff pretty much. And then he comes out and throws for 300-plus and just has a great game. And so, yeah, he's going to have to continue to develop, but that's that's typical with the guy that hasn't had much experience, as we know. And so I think, especially starting off there, you got a tough game against Texas, which I've already talked about, but you also got Georgia Southern and Rice in there. Uh, the Rice game one, Georgia Southern game three, before you hit that brutal stretch of uh, playing – Georgia, Ole Miss, and A&M, I, I put those out of order. But, you know, in a three-week span, you got those games. And so he's got a couple of games I don't want to call freebies, uh, but at least games that should be able to kind of get his feet wet and really get uh, get the tempo of this offense going. How how are they going to use his feet? Like, in, in what, in what, like how, in what way could that, I guess, mask any, any deficiencies or, or, I guess, a level he's not there yet as a passer, particularly in the pocket. How much do you think they'll intentionally run him, and how big of a weapon do you think that will be to get him out of tough situations, even if it's not a designed run? You know, I really don't know how many – they'll definitely use him in the run game, but I'm kind of questioning – so right behind him is Malik Hornsby. who was a very highly recruited guy out of the 2020 class out of Texas, and he's got, like, world-class speed. So I certainly think – that they are going to use him in the running game. They're going to put some packages in. So I don't know how many actual design runs that they'll have for KJ. There's going to be certainly ones where play breaks down, and I think he'll do something with his feet. He's a big guy and has some speed. He's about four, high four, five, low four, six shifts, I think is about where he's at, where he, whereas Malik's like, you know, low four fours, uh, just extremely fast. And so I, I definitely think that he will be utilizing the run game. There's no question to do that with a dual-threat quarterback like him. But I, I'm really wondering how many design runs that they're going to have for him as opposed to Malik for some packages in there. I know you haven't seen a ton of him in terms of game action, so I'm probably asking an impossible question. But, I mean, they did have a spring this year, and you kind of know somewhat what he is from limited stints. Greatest strength and greatest weakness for K.J. Jefferson at this point. I would say the strength is 100% the confidence. Uh, just like I said, that's that's so key. We wonder why so many five-star and four-star quarterbacks don't turn out. And I'm not going to say this is the case with all of them, but some of it is they don't want to put the work in in the film room and break down defenses. But a lot of the times it's they just they get to the next level and it might be a little bit too much for them. K.J. Jefferson has never shown me that. He, he had his first start as a true freshman in Death Valley against the 2019 LSU Tigers. Now, I understand that LSU defense wasn't elite like their offense was. They were pretty dang good. But still, to go into that kind of environment, and and I just didn't see one hint of fear uh, whatsoever from him. I would say maybe his weakness is really – this is going to sound cliche, but but he definitely uh, still could work on it's in terms of some, okay, is he going to run it first or is he going to look at his second and third option? Maybe at least his third option. And some of that's going to come with uh, getting trust for your offensive linemen and all of that. But I think that's just really what it boils down to for me from what I've seen from him. Um, I, I, I 
can't say enough how much I love his confidence, how much I trust him in that regard. But he's just it's just going to come with time, you know, trusting your receivers, trusting your offensive line and, and the guys around you and, re, and giving, taking what the defense gives you. Around him, Arkansas was pretty squarely in the middle of the pack in terms of the running game last year. Obviously, you lose Rakeem Boyd. Uh, I think Traylon Smith will probably be a pretty decent replacement, but I, it would seem particularly with the younger quarterback that you'd like to be one, a little bit better up front, which I think Arkansas probably will be on the offensive line. I know they had some issues protecting the quarterback and some, some in pass, run, uh, excuse me, run blocking as well last year. But I, I, would you, would you consider that a pretty, pretty important factor in KJ Jefferson's success is Arkansas taking a little bit of a step in the running game and generating something a little bit better and a little bit more efficient than they had on a game-to-game basis in 2020? Yeah, I don't think it's any question. Traylon Smith is just not being talked about a lot. He did a lot of great things last year. Now, I I really don't – I guess I didn't really pay attention to it much last year. I don't really know how he is, particularly in the the pass-blocking game. But there's a guy, a freshman that we brought in from Florida, Rocket Sanders, is Raheem Rocket Sanders. And he he moved – he was kind of an athlete, listed as an athlete, but when we put him at running back, and I've looked at his film, and he's pretty good in the run-blocking game. And then also another freshman that we're bringing in, A.J. Green. You know, I'm not really sure what he can do, but you can expect to see them plug him in. And so, But that is going to be massive. Kendall Bryles even talked about how important it is to be able to, to uh, block in that particular offense that he runs. And so it's definitely going to be key. That's another great point that you bring up that people don't discuss enough. We don't talk about how important it is, especially in today's game, for running backs to be, everybody likes to, to look at the sexy numbers as of how many yards did he rush for? How many, is he can he catch the ball out of the backfield? But you don't ever think about the pass protection, which is what the scouts really look at too. And obviously, it will help having guys to throw to, which I think we definitely have enough uh, on the top end, at least on the front end for Arkansas. I, I thought the Mike Woods transfer was interesting, and I'm just curious. So obviously, you have Traylon Burks, you have Trey Knox there. It, it, it doesn't look like an uber-deep receiving room, but Ole Miss has had a couple of these with Lane Kiffin so far on the defensive side of the football where they've gotten better from a talent perspective, and you've had a guy that's uh, – the latest one they had was a, a safety named John Haynes who transferred a couple of days ago. You have these guys that have played on really bad defenses the last couple of years that kind of look around, kind of start seeing the room, seeing there's more talent in there, and seeing you know in their later upperclassmen years – their snap count potentially de- decreasing and going elsewhere. Jacquez Jones was another one of them. He ends up at Kentucky. What, what kind of – I guess I'm not, I'm not shoehorning you into an answer here, but, like, what kind of went into the Mike Woods thing? I thought that was kind of in- an interesting uh, transfer in the offseason that maybe kind of flew a little bit under the radar. Was it a getting deeper there, or does he not feel like it was a good fit? I just found that interesting. Yeah, it, they kept uh, the program did a pretty good job. I, I certainly, I'll be honest with you, just as you would expect, I went digging for answers, but they kept it pretty quiet for the most part. Uh, they did, did a good job on both ends, Mike Woods and the university. But it was weird because he had a pretty good spring game. Seemed like he was all excited and this and that. And then all of a sudden you hear he's transferring to, well, you get a, a, a rumor mill on Twitter that he's transferring to OU. And, of course, I'm like, oh, it's just all talk or whatever. I think what – there's and one of the rumors was is he wasn't sure about the quarterback situation and all that. I think what happened is Lincoln Riley or some of the – one of the coaches from Oklahoma called him and said, hey, we've got a chance, as we always do, to make the college football playoff. And, I mean, they, I guess they left out the fact that, you know, get to the college football playoff and get blown out by 30 or 40. But 
that we have a chance to get to the college football playoff, and we've got Spencer Rattler right there. He's going to be one of the top quarterbacks in next year's class, and you've got an opportunity to come here and do something. And so I, I can't really blame him. If, if I'm a kid, too, and you get the exposure that OU does and, and you've had the success particularly on offense that OU does, I, I don't really blame him for doing that, but that's fine. And, you know, we've I think that we've got plenty of guys in the waiting. There's plenty of uh, – of talent that hasn't been proven yet. You look at you look at a guy like Darren Turner. You look at uh, Keytron Jackson, a highly heralded freshman coming in from Texas, and Davion Warren is expected to come back healthy from the ACL. And Sam Pittman has gone on record. I don't know if this was a, a shot at Mike Woods or if he was just saying what he what was on his mind, but he said that Davion Warren was our second best receiver last year before he went down. So assuming Davion comes back and then Trey Knox can start living up to his potential, I, I think we're going to be fine at at receiver because Trey Trey Burks is going to uh, he's going to demand a lot of attention and so that's going to take a lot of pressure off of uh, Hudson Henry the tight end Blake Kern the tight end and all those other receivers that are going to be out there too. Arkansas last year this year they have a chance to I, I believe there's a pretty good possibility that you have four seniors and a junior on the offensive line or I guess that would be three seniors a sophomore and a junior now that I'm kind of looking at it. You mentioned depth being an issue as Arkansas got deeper and deeper into the season last year and without knowing, because I don't know this off the top of my head, would that be – because Arkansas wasn't great on the offensive line last year. I think they were 104th in third and fourth in short conversions and kind of somewhere similar in in basically your basic pass protection stat range. But they do have some upperclassmen there. Was it a lack of depth on the offensive line last year? Because obviously with the younger quarterback, uh, that is going to be important uh, for Arkansas this year what was kind of the issues on the offensive line last year and um do you think that will be better this year particularly with a couple guys older yeah I think Chad had the wrong approach that's another thing that he thought he could he wanted these guys to be like fairly fit and then I, I guess I use fit loosely basically what I'm trying to get at Chad wanted him to be under under 300 pounds and and wanted him to be able to move a little bit more well Sam Pittman knows how to get them to still be able to move around and also be 300 plus like you need to be in the SEC. And so I think that uh, the COVID, that was another thing that the COVID year really affected that they weren't able to work with the coaches as much. Uh, Brad Davis did a great job for us. I mean, I think with what he, especially in recruiting and, and uh, for the year that he was here before he went to LSU, but now you bring in a young guy and Cody Kennedy who's like in his mid twenties. And so he can certainly relate with these guys well, and also is very knowledgeable. He spent time with Pittman at Georgia before uh, he went to, I believe, uh, yeah, he spent time at Tulane over the last couple of seasons as their run game coordinator and O-line coach. And so, yeah, I think it was just a mixture of, again, trying to learn a new system. These guys were, you know, have had so many – some of them have had so many different coaches, X amount, what is it, maybe two or three over the last three years or so. So that was tough. But, yeah, it was was, there were some injuries that piled up there. Dalton Wagner, I know, was one uh, that that was uh, affected there. And – but then you bring in a guy like Tykeus Crawford, who was committed to uh, to Chad Morris in the 2020 class, four-star player that ended up decommitting. And I, I think he had some great issues and ended up going to Charlotte. But uh, there's some talent there. And then Ricky Stromberg is expected to possibly be a uh, a, a top three or, or, or at least a third round, up to a third round pick whenever it's all said and done for him. So there, And Myron Cunningham, a uh, fifth, fifth or sixth-year senior that's uh, done some good things for us too. So I think now that these guys have a chance to gel and mesh together and they've had a full off season to where they've been able to, again, like we talked about, get back to that normalcy, it should be a lot stronger for them in the run and pass game this year. 
what do they need Jefferson to be? Like, what is Arkansas's identity? Like, if Arkansas has improved offensively in 2021, it's because of why. And if it's disappointing and they struggle and they lose games because they can't score enough points, why is that as well? Like, what do they, what do they need Jefferson to be? And what is the best version of this offense? Like, what does that look like? I don't think he needs to be a hero. Yeah, it'd be great if he could pass for 200 to 250 a game. But I feel confident in what we can do in the in the running game with Traylon Smith. Again, I think he's a very underrated back in the S. I'm not saying that he's maybe even top five, but I definitely think he's an underrated back that can do a lot of great things for you. And so that that's one that I, I we don't need him to be the. There's people talking about, and it's, that's going to happen. It's talking season right now. I get it, but the thing about it is, is there's some people that are saying that that K.J. Jefferson could be a, a dark horse for the Heisman, which this is nothing against him, but that's just – I think that's a little silly to do when he's only started one – or started two games in his entire career. But he just needs to come out there and play his game and, and you know, get it, to, get it to Traylon Burks. Let Traylon Burks be the hero. He's the guy that's one of the best athletes in the entire country, one of the best receivers in the entire country. Let him help you out. Let him do his job. And then everybody else do their job. Because that's essentially what it boils down to, you know. I think that's really kind of the, the mindset of the Kendall Bryles offense. You look at what he was – when it was ultra successful at Baylor. Yeah, he had a, a Heisman Trophy winner at one point and Robert Griffin the third, but they also had a lot of other guys doing things. And so I think that they're just going to try to get the ball around. And, and again, back to Traylon Burks getting double teamed and getting a lot of attention. That's going to open up a, an opportunity for a lot of other guys too. And so, um, you know, I think K.J. just really, like everybody else, has to go out there and do his job. He doesn't have to be a hero. And as you kind of transition elsewhere, it's you know, when you have an offense like that that you're hoping is, you know, good and competent, but certainly not going to kind of outscore people and, and, win, and win track meets. So capable of doing it on occasional basis, but that would not necessarily be Arkansas's MO. You're going to need to have a pretty competent defense, and Arkansas returns one that was pretty opportunistic, per, per, particularly, I can't talk this morning, uh, in the first half of last season. As I kind of mentioned, that turnover center, they returned 10 starters depth seemed like they kind of got worn down towards the end of the year depth was a little bit of an issue how much of that Arkansas defense last year in terms of it it helping them win a couple games was real and how much of it was it being just kind of opportunistic with turnovers which I mean you can't discount but the the idea that they'll have seven turnovers in a game this year and 13 in a four game stretch is probably not feasible as well like how much of that was real and how much of that was a little bit of, um, I guess, uh, opportunistic play, if that makes any sense. I, I do think that the defense was – back to, like, the first string, I think that we definitely had some guys who could really play, and, and I, I will keep that opinion, but certainly think that it was – I feel like they caught a lot of people off guard uh, just because people expect – we've seen what Arkansas had done, four wins the last two years, what was it, eight total in three years, and so – you look at that, and I think that, that Arkansas caught a lot of people. They were sleeping on them, essentially, I guess you could say. And then once they started to kind of get – once they kind of started to get on the radar, people after that old Miss game, they got all that attention. We were talking about Hudson Clark should have been a uh, – went to go from walk-on to possible Heisman Trophy winner type stuff. Or, you know, maybe at least uh, Jim Thorpe – maybe not quite Heisman, but uh, Jim Thorpe award status. I think – I don't know that I necessarily got in their heads. I think Pittman does a really good job of not letting them get too tied up in headlines and all that stuff. But I think a lot of it was just the opportunistic stuff. They, they, they took the opportunities and the, and the other teams sleeping on them and they took advantage of that. And they, that helped them get a win or two, at least. I think that the Tennessee game that, I mean, Tennessee was just in such shambles. I, I really think that we could have, uh, 
won that game for many different aspects. But certainly the Ole Miss and Mississippi State games, those were ones where, sir, I mean, Matt Corral even admitted in the postgame press conference, he, I mean, literally quoting him, he said he slept on him. And so, I, I you know, I, I'll be honest with you, Brian, I'm terrified for that game because we, we play A&M and then Georgia and then go to Oxford. Uh, and, you know, it's fun. Like, a bunch of Razorback fans love to share that that game where he threw six interceptions. But even I've been telling him, hey, enjoy that while you can for the next couple of months because uh, if you think he's going to do that again, you think he's going to play that bad, you got another thing coming. Yeah, that was an interesting game just because Arkansas sat back and they rarely had more than four or five guys in the box and played a soft zone that really – really screwed with Corral's head, and I think they really took advantage of Corral not having a ton of, like, reps starting you know, starting reps, or particularly SEC reps under his belt because of how the 2019 season was sort of hijacked from him by Rich Rodriguez. Um, I think that was an important learning moment for Corral as well. Where would you say the strength of this Arkansas defense is? Because they returned pretty much everything. I know they got to replace a little bit on the interior defensive line. Uh, it, I mean, I guess outside of linebacker, because that seems by far and away, particularly at the top end, the greatest strength, like you mentioned, All-American Grant Morgan, All-SEC guy, Bumper Pool, which uh, also are the all-name team. Like, what? I guess which one would you feel more confident in if you're following Arkansas this year? Would it be on the defensive line or on the back end and the secondary? Because there's a mixture of youth, youth and depth in both of those position groups. Oh, I don't think it's any question the secondary. Uh, just because you look at, I, I, and this may sound like a homer take, I think Jalen Catalan is the best safety in the country. Uh, just with his smarts, with his ability, if the referees would actually let him play his game, uh, he would even have better stats than he did. But you just look at what at what he was able to do in his one year on uh, one year starting. Chad Morris didn't really know. It was funny. Chad Morris said he's the best high school player he's ever seen, or at least in the top five of, of ones that he's ever seen, but didn't know how to use them, just like he didn't know how to use really anybody. And so, and you also look at Monteric Brown, who made a lot of progress last year, um, even in the, the two deep uh, of, of the secondary. Uh, Ladarius Bishop, also to um, Joe Fouché, got a lot of a lot of tenures. I think really over the last three years, he's kind of been a pretty consistent starter, as per, in particular over the last two. And so uh, Miles Slusher, a guy that got a little bit of playing time last year, but was very highly regarded out of the Tulsa area. I think he's from Broken Arrow. So I, I have the most confidence in the secondary. So it's really about just getting the pass rush now and helping them out and helping your linebackers out. Arkansas schedule is interesting in the sense that they'll go to the month of October without playing a true road game. You've got the Texas A&M game the week before that at the end of September in Arlington. But you start out Rice, Texas, Georgia Southern. I think that'd be two and one at, at absolute worst. You do get Texas at home, which will be kind of seems like the – the, is the K.J. Jefferson ready for this game uh, particularly? And then it gets a lot tougher. You go back-to-back back on the road at Ole Miss, get a little bit of a break with Auburn in another non-conference game. But, like, where do you see the most important stretch of Arkansas' schedule? Because there's an argument to be made it is the first four games and not falling in a, you know, two – I don't think there's any way they would fall one and three. But, like, you, you, you would feel a hell of a lot better going into that October stretch at three and one than you would at two and two. Uh, so I would definitely say that it would probably be that Texas game. It starts off there because if you start off one and two, or, or I'm sorry, if you start off two, uh, two and one right there, whenever you get, uh, whenever you, so you get rice at the beginning and then you got Georgia Southern there in game three. So if you get that Texas game or if you don't get the Texas game, you're sitting at two and one. And then right after that, you've got a really, really brutal stretch 
of Georgia, Texas A&M, and also the the Ole Miss game. Now, of course, Texas A&M comes before Georgia in uh, week four there in Arlington, but it just really concerns me if you don't get the Texas game because, like, I, I don't know, man. You think about starting off right there at, at, at two and four, it's going to be a lot harder for you if you start off at two and four, as we all know, than three and three. And I don't see us beating A&M. I certainly do not see us beating Georgia at Georgia, and I really don't see us beating Ole Miss uh, and Oxford, especially after the debacle of last year. Uh, you know Lane Kiffin's going to be pissed off. Matt Corral's going to be pissed off, the whole entire team, since they have so many guys coming back. And so that first stretch, yeah, I, I understand it's not about how you start, it's how you finish. I, I get that whole deal. And, and we've got some opportunities for some wins there at the back end, Arkansas, Pine Bluff, Auburn, Missouri. You hope that they could beat them since it's been since 2015 that they have. But, uh, you know, you've also got Alabama and a LSU team that's going to probably be a lot stronger than last year. So it's really going to be about, I think, how you start uh, just because you really want to get that Texas game for fan base morale, but also, too, just to get a win that many are not expecting. What is the success for Arkansas? Is it to get back to the bowl, to a bowl game and get to a postseason? I know you had the bowl game canceled last year, but I mean, hell, like who didn't at that point? Kind of a weird year. But it, it, it's a tough draw getting uh, Georgia as one of the East opponents. And you kind of need to go pretty much three and one in the non-conference schedule and then figure out a way to kind of get to three and five to make that happen. Like, how would you gauge the success? And is there any world where, like, you would feel optimistic going into Sam Pittman's year three at five and seven? I think most people expect a bowl game because you look at the Auburn game that you should have won. You look how close you were against Missouri. You look how close you were. Um, against LSU I think that most people expect a bowl game I personally now I don't want this to happen but I will understand that I, I have them at five and seven and I think that that is probably I, I certainly think six and six is reasonable as well but I think five and seven is probably the most realistic prediction right now and so I think that if you, you definitely want to get to that five six win mark if you don't get there there's going to start be some Sam Pittman doubt. And in year two, and in one of the hardest rebuilding jobs that we've ever seen, there is going to be some uh, some definite naysayers there, especially with a lot of super seniors and a lot of uh, experience coming back. But I, I definitely think the overall, overall uh, expectations are a bowl game. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's going to be five and seven personally. He's Kyle Sutherland of the Hog Talk Podcast. Check him out on Twitter at K underscore Sutherland, S-U-T-H-E-R-L-A-N-D-H-T-P. Kyle, I really appreciate the time. Uh, this was great stuff, and uh, let's do it again possibly game week. Absolutely, Brian. Yeah, always good talking with you, man. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll catch up sometime. All right, that was Kyle Sutherland. Really appreciate the time. Thought he offered some really good insight on Arkansas and what will be a really interesting year, too, for Sam Pittman under a uh, pretty brutal schedule. It's going to be one of those things. Uh, you know, Ole Miss, I wouldn't want to say lucked out in the schedule, but didn't have, uh, you know, Georgia as an East opponent. And you look at Ole Miss's schedule, and out of the 12 games, you actually feel there's a case to be made to win 11 of them, right, outside of Alabama. Not really the case with the way the Arkansas schedule shook out to where Sam Pittman could actually be making pretty, uh, I guess, sizable progress, if you will, and the results might not be there, which is going to set up for – an interesting year three, should that be the case? Because as you guys know, this is a result-driven business. So anyway, I found that to be really interesting. We'll continue that with one next week. And then, like I mentioned at the top of the podcast, Walden and I doing our 
fall, Weldon Rodenberg, that is a former Ole Miss recruiting staffer that is joining us during football season this year, will be doing our uh, fall camp, summer camp, I think should be more aptly named, uh, preview show on Thursday, but recording that on Wednesday night. So if you have questions, go ahead and send them my way, uh, social media, email, whatever, if you have questions regarding Ole Miss, because it is football season. So be on the lookout for that and have a good Wednesday.